Welcome to The Term, a podcast about the Supreme Court by Law360. I'm Natalie Rodriguez, and joining me as usual is Supreme Court reporter Jimmy Hoover. Hey, Jimmy, how's it going? I'm well, Natalie. Um, you know, I'm just thanking my lucky stars for Breyer's retirement because it actually means that we have something to talk about today. You know, this is the midwinter doldrums at the Supreme Court. There's no opinions. There's no oral arguments, so to speak. So we're getting a little inventive here. But um, let's just catch up on, you know, what's been going on with this. I guess we won't call it a vacancy because he's still in the Supreme Court. But what's happening with this impending vacancy, this vacancy to be, if you will? Yeah, I, I feel like we have to come up with a, a good slogan because I feel like this is just going to be like regular updates for the next you know, few weeks, right. months, who knows how long. Uh, I, I think you at one point said Briar Retire Watch. I'm, I'm cool with that. Um, but in terms of the Briar Retire Watch, uh, one thing is that the President Biden has been putting together a bit of a war room to, to vet candidates. So there's movement on that front. We don't have a candidate yet, but, uh, you know, it's happening. Uh, and and, and it seems to be getting closer. Um, yeah, he. I think he named uh, former Senator Doug Jones, uh, who obviously s- served that partial term as a, a Democratic senator in Alabama. And he's kind of the headliner of among the new outside advisors to the White House is going to be kind of helping shepherd whoever this eventual nominee will be through this, as we talked about last week, you know, razor thin margin in the Senate where, you know, Biden can't afford to lose a single vote on whoever his nominee is, at least from the Democratic side. That's right. That's right. Um, also, in, in a bit of a more Briar retire watch news, uh, one of the presumed front runners, uh, Judge Katanji Brown Jackson, actually issued her first D.C. Circuit opinion, um, which, you know, it, it was kind of like not necessarily a big high stakes case opinion, but um, it's her first on the D.C. Circuit. So it kind of gives folks watching this space, uh, you know, something to dig into in terms uh, and, and, and really analyze in terms of, you know, how how her thinking goes yeah right i mean i was pouring through some of her past decisions and i was actually i i I didn't realize at the time that she hadn't had a you know she hadn't authored an appellate decision um before uh this week obviously the bulk of her judicial record still being as a federal district court judge now i should just mention that this is not uncommon for supreme potential supreme court nominees to not have that developed record you know someone like uh Justice Elena Kagan comes to mind. She she hadn't even served on the federal bench. And I think Justice Amy Coney Barrett had only served for for just a few years. But again, I think that the, you know, her 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 record as a trial court dr- judge, and it's a really interesting record. There's lots of cases there, are going to be what um, you know, senators pour over in the event that she does emerge as Biden's nominee. Yeah, it's definitely going to be a space to watch, um, and we will continue to give you updates on um, any potential nominees uh, and the whole process as as it comes along. So I was underplaying our hand a little bit in the beginning of the show, saying there was nothing to talk about, because there are, in fact, a number of cases that, you know, we I wouldn't say we've neglected, but I think last week's prior news kind of took over the show a little bit, because just a few days before, on Monday, the Supreme Court took up a pair of blockbuster affirmative action cases. Now, these are cases involving Harvard University, the University of North Carolina, and we're going to talk all about it with a special guest today, uh, Senior Law 360 Boston Courts reporter, Chris Villani, who's joining the show. Thanks for coming on, Chris. Thanks for having me. So last Monday, the Supreme Court agreed to hear these two challenges to affirmative action policies at Harvard and the University of North Carolina. 
Uh, there are admission policies that take race into account during the admissions process. These blockbuster cases are said to give the court's conservative justices the chance to end affirmative action in higher education, which was first upheld by the court in 1978. So let's just dive into these two cases, Chris, which you've been following. Uh, who brought them and how did they get to the Supreme Court? Sure. So both cases were brought by a guy named Ed Blum, who's an anti-affirmative action legal strategist, activist, however you want to phrase it. But this has been a huge issue for him now for years. He's already guided multiple cases to the Supreme Court. Most recently, the two cases brought by Abigail Fisher against the University of Texas, one in 2013, one in 2016, that again sort of chipped away at that ruling that you had alluded to, the 1978 ruling in University of California v. Bakke, and still upheld the use of race in the admissions process. So Ed Blum has been very clear about what his objective is. He wants to end race as a consideration in the application process for uh, higher academics. And, and he sued both Harvard University and the University of North Carolina. They're very similar claims, essentially saying that Harvard and UNC engage what he would call racial balancing or engineering of their incoming classes in order to make sure that certain uh, racial and ethnic groups are represented to certain amounts and to the detriment of what they would describe as more qualified Asian American in the case of Harvard and Asian American and white applicants in the case of UNC. They say this is illegal. They sued in federal court. Uh, as far as how it got to the Supreme Court, Blum so far has lost in every case along the way uh, in both of these cases. Harvard went to a bench trial that was in the fall of 2018 in front of Judge Allison Burroughs, who ruled in Harvard's favor the following year. The First Circuit since upheld that ruling. And in the case of UNC, he lost at the district court level. The Fourth Circuit, I don't believe it had a chance to weigh in yet, but with the Harvard case uh, already ripe for Supreme Court review, they kind of lumped both of these together. And it seems like they're going to deal with the question of race and how it should or whether it should be considered in assessing higher academic admissions. In a bit of a nutshell, um, can you tell us like what the parties are arguing in their briefs, especially if the universities have said anything um, in their briefs so far? Sure. So I touched a little bit on what uh, Ed Blum and his uh, organization, Students for Fair Admissions, SFFA, uh, are arguing. They say this is racial balancing, it's illegal, it shouldn't happen, and it's causing a, a tangible harm to otherwise very qualified uh, applicants who are being dinged for no other reason other than they are races that these universities deem to be overrepresented, quote unquote, in their classes. The universities have defended the use of race, and they say they will continue to at the Supreme Court as one factor in what they describe as a holistic admissions process. So looking at the entire person. Um, one of my favorite anecdotes from the Harvard uh, trial going back to 2018, because people say, why don't they just take everybody with the, the best grades and the best SAT scores? If they took every applicant who applied to Harvard who had a perfect GPA and perfect SATs, there would be more applicants than they have seats for the freshman class. So they can't do that. That's what the schools say. They have to find other ways to figure out what their class is going to look like. And they're looking for people that can achieve in a variety of different ways. And diversity brings about a lot of benefits of being exposed to people from different backgrounds, with different points of view. They say all of these candidates are eminently qualified, but 
They want to achieve diversity and the benefits that flow from that, and they're doing it in a narrowly tailored way that has already been blessed by the Supreme Court now four or five times over the past quarter century. So that's what they're going to continue to argue, I think, to some extent at the Supreme Court. But uh, of course, it's a conservative supermajority. You would think they took this case for a reason, especially because they just tackled affirmative action uh, in college admissions only a few years ago in the second Fisher case. So it, it would seem as though there might be a strategy for Harvard of trying to find some sort of middle ground here that allows the use of race, but maybe uh, puts in more guardrails or, or narrows down the way that it can be used in the admissions process. Because th- there's no question about it. This is a, a charged political issue, and they are facing a court that seems to prevent, uh, present an uphill climb for both Harvard and UNC. Right. And it's a charged political issue. In this case, both of these cases, they have all the markings of, of test cases, almost like vehicles, specifically to get to this newly conservative Supreme Court. And, and the court has agreed to take up this explicit question of whether to overrule its uh, 2003 Grutter versus Bollinger ruling, right, which was, I guess, the last official time that they you know, explicitly considered this question of uh, you know, uh, race-conscious admissions policies. You wrote a great piece about this uphill climb that the schools now face in the Supreme Court as they defend these policies, given the, the new makeup of the court. Tell, tell, tell us more about you know, these long odds and, and maybe where we can expect the justices to possibly come down on this issue. Sure. So you go into it saying, what's a win for both of these sides? For SFFA and Ed Blum, a win is the end of race as a consideration in the college admissions process. I think any observer would have to say that is absolutely possible well within their grasp when you look at the makeup of this court. An outright win for Harvard would be, and UNC, would be a a complete uh, affirmation of the lower court rulings. I think any objective observer would say that's highly unlikely. They'll have three votes. They'll have the the three liberal justices. Um, We'll see who the third liberal justice is, we presume, uh, you know, by the time this case is argued next term. But you would think they'll have three votes, Harvard and UNC. So what's a win for Harvard and UNC? And this is what I was writing about. They have to get to five votes. And the only way to do that probably is to find some sort of a middle ground, um, reining in the use of race in the admissions process in some way that doesn't wipe it out altogether. Now, if you think they have three votes from Democratic appointees, you can maybe look to Chief Justice John Roberts and say, well, he's an institutionalist. So the the whole principle of stare decisis, the Supreme Court has tackled this issue several times now in the past two decades since 2003, and has come out roughly in the same area with just some uh, sort of minor tweaks around the edges. So that's something, um, you know, that Justice Chief Justice Roberts might consider. Also, there's the whole idea of the government interfering in academia. That That's sort of a, you would think, an anti-conservative principle, right, to have this private university, in Harvard's case at least, who now finds itself, through the fact that they receive federal funds, having to really, uh, you know, adhere to what the government says or a government institution says it should do in terms of selecting its class. You would think those are things that are not really all that palatable to someone like like John Roberts. But on the other hand, John Roberts has been pretty outspoken uh, about 
affirmative action and not being a fan, the sordid business of, of uh, arranging people by race or however right. he, he described the, it. The so, way to the way to stop discriminate the, the way to stop discrimination on the basis of race is to stop discriminating on the basis of race. I think that's one of his famous kind of yeah. slogans, right? Yeah, exactly. So that's a vote that you would think they might be able to court and find some arguments that would really appeal to him. But it just seems like this is not an issue where he's likely to come down on the side of uh, Harvard and UNC. So where do you find those other votes in the conservatives block, conservative block? And certainly not Clarence Thomas, certainly not Alito. I don't think any of the Trump appointees. It's a really, really uh, going to be a really challenging thing for Harvard. And it'll be interesting to see whether the schools kind of stick with the same arguments that won the day in district court and in the First Circuit, because they're facing a very, very different setting here, a different bench. Uh, justices who, in some cases, are very openly hostile to the arguments they've made in the past. Uh, it, it's going to be really challenging going in. And there are certainly those observers who say the decision in this case was the cert decision. And now it's just a question of who's going to write the opinion, how strong will the dissent be from uh, Justice Sotomayor, whoever writes it, and uh, a pretty sweeping change uh, is what a lot of people think is is coming now in terms of the way that uh, these college classes are selected. Definitely one to watch. Um, Chris, thank you so much for, for coming on and, and talking us through this case. Happy to, anytime. Now, the affirmative action cases weren't actually the only uh, cert grants, uh, cases taken up by the Supreme Court last Monday. There was also a a pretty big, in terms of environmental cases go, grant in a case involving the scope of the Clean Water Act. And Natalie, you've actually been keeping an eye on this one. I know you've dug into some of the briefs to figure out what it's all about. So to those unfamiliar, such as myself, about you know why this case is important for the area of environmental law and, and you know the, the scope of the EPA's authority, kind of break it all down for us. Yeah, so in a kind of very nutshell level, this case, Sackett versus EPA, um, basically is asking the court to review whether the Ninth Circuit used the right test to determine whether wetlands are subject to the Clean Water Act's federal jurisdiction. Now, this sounds very, you know, granular, very technical, um, and it is, <laughs> but <laughs> on a very broad level, it actually has some big implications for whether this case will broaden or limit the federal jurisdiction under the Clean Water Act and basically what the EPA can regulate, essentially. Right. Um, and it's it's going to have impacts to a- across the country, essentially, to, you know, who has to apply to for, for certain permits. Yeah, so tell us tell us about this test. Um, I understand it has to do with something surrounding contiguous bodies of water and all that. I, I, you know, I'm not an <laughs> I'm not in the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers. So why don't you break it down for me in, in layman's terms? So I'm going to try to break this down as simply as possible. Um, I will say this is actually super interesting once you get into it and get past things like uh, you know contiguous bodies of water terms. Um, so a little backstory is that the case revolves around whether Idaho landowners Michael and Chantel Sackett um, need to get a Clean Water Act permit to build a home on their property. The EPA says there are wetlands on that property that fall under the Clean Water Act's jurisdiction. Um, but the homeowners are saying there's no surface level connection. There's no surface level connection to any stream, creek, lake, 
or other water body. So they argue it's not a water of the United States or WOTUS, which is a very like important term to know when it comes to the Clean Water Act, right? Is it so WOTUS? Saying, is it WOTUS? Is that, did you say WOTUS? I'm going to say WOTUS, but okay, I'll also try to that. keep it. I'm also <laughs> just going to try not to say that term too much because it's like such a, such a, you know, a, a mouthful of a term to, to, to get through here. But basically they're saying like, look, there's no obvious water here. You can't regulate us. The surface um, connection that is like, you know. Exactly. Okay. Now, if this is sounding a little familiar to you, as it did to me, um, and it was like giving me all sorts of deja vu, it's because in 2020, the court actually also had another case that dealt with a very similar issue about the Clean the Water Hawaii Act. The Hawaii case. The Hawaii case, yes. That's right. Um, also from the Ninth Circuit. Um, and in that case, the, the court was trying to figure out whether the Ninth Circuit had used too broad a standard when it found that permits were required for wastewater wells in Hawaii. And for me, what really uh, kind of like rang a bell in my head was I remember in that case, Justice Alito and Justice Byron and several other justices kind of bringing up the issue of like, well, like, can homeowners with septic tanks yes. get, you know, swept into having to get these special permits if we go for a very broad ruling. Um, and in that case, the, the court ruled fairly narrowly, right? Um, and did not go for like the super broad ruling that would have swept homeowners into um, into the, the, the Clean Water Act's jurisdiction. Right. So here we are, 2022 and we're dealing with homeowners who are having to get permits under the clean water act so um i, I think it's you know i, I think it's uh, it's a different issue involving the clean water act but i think at the heart of the problem with the all these cases um and with a lot of the clean water act cases is how do you define water of the united states right um and that's been uh it's not well defined in the act um and a lot of in the last three administrations, uh, Obama, Trump, and now Biden, have been trying to develop a, a, a more clear regulatory defi definition of what a water of the United States is. Um, because, you know, it's like, where do you set up the boundaries? Is it water you can see? Is it water under the ground? Um, which was in the Hawaii case, the, the concerns right. like, well, at what point do you, you know, do you set a boundary um, here? So while that plays out um, on the regulatory stage, on the, you know, the federal stage, the courts are kind of left to muddle through with like, how do we define what waters of the United States is? And that's where we are with this case. It is really interesting because, you know, it, it's water, right? <laughs> it's, <laughs> just, sorry, sorry, sorry. <laughs> So it's stupid. water and it can go it's the, through the ground. It's the economy. It's, it's the economy, like, stupid. Yeah, exactly. Is it, is it like a lit? Is a little drop considered a water of the United States that is that is regulated to certain environmental standards? Right. Yeah, I, I suppose like it gets it gets really murky to use uh, a pun here um, when we're talking about like wetlands or groundwater or anything that kind of like connects something to another body of water without it there being that surface connection that the homeowners are talking about here um, exactly. that is a really interesting case you've sold me on it um, let's let's <laughs> let's talk about it further as as it, as it develops and and we hear oral arguments 
Um, and I just want to clear up one other potentially misleading thing I said at the beginning when I said that there's really not happening much in the way of Supreme Court activity this week. That's actually not true in the sense that there is some shadow docket activity in a in a in a in a big uh, Voting Rights Act case that could potentially be resolved as soon as tonight or Friday. You know, we're we're recording on Thursday afternoon, but it it basically involves a challenge to um, Alabama's new congressional map from a group of black voters who say it discriminates and dilutes the power of the African-American vote by kind of packing them into one majority district and then kind of diluting them throughout the rest. So in the entire state, there's only one majority black district, despite, um, you know, a large uh, percentage of the state population being African American, and so a three-judge panel ultimately, you know, reviewed this map and said that Alabama had to go back to the drawing board, and they had to come up with a situation in which they created, you know, at least two um, majority Black districts in the state to give those voters the chance to elect, uh, you know, the, the the congressional representatives of their choice. Now, Alabama has asked the Supreme Court to essentially dissolve this injunction and. Um, they make the argument that the three-judge panel used the wrong test under or misapplied the Supreme Court's test under the Voting Rights Act and specifically Section 2, which uh, revolves around some of these discriminatory uh, electoral uh, policies. So that's one to watch out for. It could come out uh, pretty soon. Um, but I think that's that's pretty much about it for this week, um, Natalie. I think, I think so, right? Yeah, I feel like we, we covered a lot here. Um, good conversation as always. Absolutely. And thanks to our listeners for, for tuning in. We'd like to thank our producers, Stephen Trader and Kelly Marcano, and our executive producer, Amber McKinney. We'd also like to thank our special guest, Chris Villani, and contributing reporter, Juan Carlos Rodriguez. Music for the show comes from Slender Beats. For more information about all the iCourt action, please go to law360.com slash the term. You can also find us anywhere you listen to podcasts. Just search Law360 in the term. Thanks for listening. No, please write us a review.